My name is Scott Chaloner and this is the Leaders' Council podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a grey and very cool winter morning here in the capital, but I'm delighted to say that joining me on today's show to hopefully add some warmth and brightness to affairs is Dr. Jane Brassington, Director of A1 Cairo Limited, the holding entity for three multidisciplinary health clinics situated across Scotland. Um, Jane, very warm welcome to you today, and by all means, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Scott. That's very kind. It's, it's a nice day yeah. up in Edinburgh, so we're lucky on that. <laughs> very lucky it seems very lucky indeed and it's an immense pleasure having you um, and um, you of course um, qualified um, as a chiropractor in your profession um, over in Australia and you've worked in family practices in Australia in uh, Europe as well but also out in the uh, the Philippines as well as um, obviously mm-hmm. coming and working in the UK so very experienced um, not just obviously with sort of different clinics um, and sort of an extensive background in the sector but also in different cultures and I can imagine that that's sort of helped you become sort of well established um, in, in Scotland, in the UK? It did. I came over during um, the financial crisis, actually, which um, from an entrepreneurial point of view, it, it was a very chaotic time. But then within that, you'll see a lot of when people come in as immigrants, for whatever reason, there's a lot of opportunity that we see um, that presents itself. So when I first got here uh, in 2009, the financial crisis had really buckled um, the UK, both emotionally and financially. Um, and it was a situation where it wasn't familiar for a lot of that generation or, or the continuing generation. Interestingly, Australia had had a recession um, some time before that. And when I first graduated from university, which is many years ago now, and um, so in Australia you do an applied science uh and a clinical science degree. So it's not necessarily a chiropractic degree per se. So you actually do, it's a very science-based university degree, which is fabulous, but within the same way, you don't have to become a chiropractor. There's other routes of modalities that you can pursue, which keeps you very open-minded, which is very helpful. And the reason why the the Australian government, um, which the UK regulator of chiropractic is based on actually, is that you can practice in almost any, in the middle of nowhere and be very well understand your own remit. So coming to Scotland um, during a very, very stressful time for people, the experience of working in different countries and going through perhaps different financial stresses previously was actually quite helpful, even though that's not directly a health scenario. It's people's health gets affected by stress and stress can be a huge, huge amount of different variables. So yeah, it was a very interesting time to come over and it was a very interesting time to set up a business and I had a very I had a huge amount of naysayers um, I probably only had out of the support group probably only had about 10% support and that really was from Australia <laughs> more than anything else um, and it was because perhaps there is a bit more of an entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial spirit in Australia because it's a younger colonial country where people got for whatever you know ways you want to term it but just kind of dumped in Australia and having to figure out how to how to do things, you know, from really basic things like building a house to, you know, setting up a fire brigade or, you know, those kind of things that were a bit more new and a bit more tangible mm. for the for these generations. So yeah. Um, when we came over, um, yeah, the UK was in somewhat of a disarray, but I was able to see the opportunity of that and yeah, be very opportunistic in one way, but very 
compassionate in other ways. So, yeah, it was a very interesting but good time to come over. Um, and mm. I've seen the UK go from strength to strength with that, um, though, you know, battling with some dogma as well in that time. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, um, yeah, that would be my my remarks of, of when I first came over and yeah. how different cultures implement or give you a, give you a, a shade of something else to, to put on. Yeah. They do, don't they? And um, it's interesting as well that so many successful businesses over the years have sprung out of times of economic hardship. And there's, it's, it's no coincidence that there is a lot of hard work that goes into it for entrepreneurs to kind of see the opportunities that are there. And, you know, when you are sort of faced with sort of all of the naysayers and you are trying to make a success of yourself, how is it that you sort of maintain your own morale and you sort of deal with the stresses that you face? Are there any sort of techniques that you use personally to kind of sort of keep yourself on the right track? I think I think not having much choice is part of it too, like being pushed up against the wall. Um, as in, when I came over, I had to see the board exam, and rightly so, um, to practice as a as a chiropractor here. So if I was going to put that effort into that financial outlay, which was significant, I had no no help with that at all. Not that I'm trying to do a poor me scenario. I don't believe that at all. But just when you have to put yourself on the line, you have to dig deep. I think and so, yeah, I think there's that internal, you have to have some kind of internal drive and see a bigger vision of what you're trying to do. And I knew that I had run successful practices beforehand, um, even if they weren't, if, even if I wasn't necessarily direct that, it was my, you know, I really took that to be my my clinic. You know, I, I would take it by the, the horns. So... Yeah, having that internal drive and just knowing that about yourself, I think, is, is important. And then also just knowing that the buck stops with you, that there's no excuses. Um, and also just trying to better, like, be inspired to better yourself and go to the lowest, lowest denominator, I guess, of what if it all falls apart and what, what if it fails? What have, I, you know, what have I got to lose? Like, what, what's the worst thing that could happen to me? So psychologically, I tend to do that a lot. I go to the lowest place. And I sit there and I kind of meditate on it, um, do some mindfulness and then go, right, if this is the worst this is going to be, what have I got to lose up there? I guess it's a good risk management tool as well. Mm. But I think too, uh, what I, my news resolution from that year was only listen, only get expert advice from experts. Yeah. That was one thing that I really decided to do. And I think in this current times with COVID, we've seen that more and more. You need to, need to see who's, the expert and why they're the expert and then even if you don't understand it figuring out why you would trust them over somebody else so you know that um that idea that you know facebook or you know bob from down the street telling you x y and z being able to have a little bit more of an ask to say well that's his opinion and that's okay but he has an opinion and it's good to bring these things up and discuss them but in the same way too where is he getting his information from and what's the trustability of that so with the naysayers, I think most of them were trying to do it just to protect me. I think there was a little bit part of it too of being a woman, like that I needed protecting, um, which, you know, obviously I'm not a big fan of. Like, obviously, every human needs protecting and not protecting as well. You know, like, there's a, there's a clear um, point to that. But I think there was those, uh, me as a demographic, you know, um, at the time, you know, single, childless woman trying to set up a business, I need protecting and I don't really know what's going on. That kind of, I must be naive rather than maybe being a bit more risk adverse and deciding that I know that this would work because I've got experience with it. 
um, and I've had that business before, but that I'm that I'm capable of doing that. And sometimes you just have to dig, dig deep and do that. But when the business, especially in Dundee, that was the first one, when that started getting legs and really starting to start starting to show some good profitability um, and a good um, reputation within the community, I realised that my skill set wasn't as sharp or as developed as what I would have perhaps needed it to be to take on further responsibility of people. I'm naturally a caretaker and I'm, I'm very much of that um, idea of though I may own things and they might be an asset, they're not really mine, they're things I'm taking care of for someone else, for another generation or for a community or, you know, that's very much a, a philosophy that I have. So I went back to university to an MBA, uh, the University of Edinburgh, and which is a quite a rare thing for a health professional to do. Um, I know particularly in the UK, the percentage of health professionals who work under the NHS, which is fabulous, and it's a really fabulous system. Unfortunately, my profession isn't a part of the NHS, and as much as I would really like it to be, and it is a drive for me to try to pursue that a little bit more uh, under the right circumstances and the right um, variables, which does happen in Australia, for instance, um, and make that more um, available for all sorts of people in all sorts of class systems. Um, the, my need for having better tool sets and better structures that are often given to the corporate world and not given to small businesses, I needed to find that. And yeah, so that's what I did. I put, put myself back to university again to be, to be instructed on how to do things better. Um, and that's really been very, not only interesting, and um, it's been very settling for me, being able to um, scale a business, having much better tool sets. Yeah. yeah, there are a couple of important things to really take away from that. Firstly, that acknowledgement that by going back to university, you recognise that, you know, you weren't a finished product and there was always more to learn and more to develop. And I think that's an incredibly important message for anybody to heed. But also when it comes to setting up a business, I mean, it's like that sort of risk averse side of things. I mean, it's like I think in British culture, especially sometimes we can kind of shy away from failure and view it as negative and mm. view it as terminal. But I suppose when you're mm. starting out and trying to grow a business, I guess the way forward is to go into it with more of a win or learn mentality, not view setbacks mm-hmm. as terminal, but use that also for your own self-development. Yeah. And know what your boundaries are. I mean, if you have a family and, and children to feed, that is, that can be a real driver as much as it can also be a real stress. So see what you're where you sit along that line. And also, um, scalability is a big one. Um, not every company, every small business needs to become a large, you know, unicorn, billion pound value company. And I think as a society, we put a little bit too much um, impression on that and, and too much um, of the spotlight. And I think that's really unnecessary, actually. Um, given anywhere between 49 to 51% of British GDP is for small businesses, um, I think people need to understand that if they have, you know, one coffee shop in their life and it's their coffee shop, that's perfectly okay. Absolutely fine. That, that, that is their success and that's perfectly okay. If they decide to have, um, I don't know, three pig lots and that's their thing, then that's great for them. If, if somebody decides to be um, entrepreneurial and like to set things up and sell them off as an M&A, great. You know, that's finding what you're, what drives you and what, what is helpful for the community in terms of supplying services and yeah, that you, you don't have to be what everybody else thinks that should be the way that it is. Like the FT, for instance, um, the Financial Times doesn't tend to talk about small business 
really is much. You know, so how do we drive that? How do we make it, mm. um, dare I say, a bit more sexy? Um, that we discuss, you know, mum and dad businesses or not that I really like this word, but mumpreneurs, like, you know, women who decide that they actually have quite a good talent um, and, you know, they might have been in the corporate world or not and then decided that they've got an idea that they want to bring to the market um, and get funding for that. Like, we know that we've got a little bit more drive now with helping women um, get into uh, the small business arena and really drive it. And we know data shows from the financial crisis that the biggest growth was women-led businesses during that time. Mm. Um, and we know that there's a direct um, link with the amount of um, partners who are male who uh, lost jobs. And women were just like, right, we need to do something about this. And they buckled down and didn't. They had some very successful businesses from that. Um, and I'm not saying that there wasn't you know, men who did that as well, but we do know percentage-wise that there was a huge increase, unlike any other time that the UK um, business arena had seen was that time. Um, so there are loads of success stories that need and that need to be promoted, but also, like anything else, if you see somebody who's had a success story, promoting that so that other mm. younger generations are able to see the pathway, we know that that's a direct uh, line between people being able to get into things. Yeah. yeah. And it's something we're very passionate about here at the Leaders' Council as well, sharing that success of small businesses, because it is those SMEs, as you say, that form the backbone of the UK economy. And they've all had sort of, to an extent, their own struggles and their own successes over the year, the last couple of years with the emergence of COVID, of course. And it's an incredible testament mm-hmm. to the resilience of industry as to how a business has managed to adapt to the challenges that it's posed. Yeah. Um, for your businesses, Jane, um, how has it been sort of trying to get around the pandemic challenge over the last couple of years? But I think it would be remiss of me if we sort of didn't touch on that. Going back to something I said a little earlier, I was I was lucky to, um, to study the MBA when I did, particularly after the financial crisis and having all that data that was, um, available to see how crisis management was best dealt with. Um, unfortunately, there wasn't a lot of small businesses that I did get into that. And it's just because I find it really interesting. You know, like I, I genuinely find the fabric of society and the different businesses that make that up um, very interesting. And I've really enjoyed that never culture that I've been in because there's, there's elements of power in there, of course. There's elements of nepotism. There's elements of um, continuing um, trade, as in like people having um, very specific niche things that they do, whether they're butchers or whether they're um, bakers or you know food industry, but also whether they're if they're blacksmiths, for instance, and just seeing how these ebb and flow with with the demand and supply of, of cultures and how they carry on and you know so on so forth. So um, Going back to doing the MBA and having a look to see, yeah, tools for crisis management, like how you lead that, how you align, like realign your vision, create the strategy, plan and action. Um, I think I was lucky as well, and luck does always play a big, big thing in these scenarios, but it was a health crisis and I'm in health. Mm. So my education in Australia, we're a little bit more used to the idea of quarantining. You know, we've, we've had disease processes from all over the world and the idea of quarantining animals and humans has not been out of the conversation. So um, being around those kind of uh, narratives growing up, it wasn't so so disastrous. You know, it wasn't seen as a, as a limitation of freedom. It was seen as a protection. So I think when your mind frame stems from with that, that's, that's that's part of it. So I think, yeah, growing up in Australia and having 
those ideas already in place was helpful. Um, the crisis management was tough. The, the biggest, the biggest take home um, from this period of time was I knew I knew risk management, so I learned I learned that at um, um, partly partly at um, the University of Edinburgh. Um, so I was able to do a survey of being able to stay open. We were allowed to stay open because we are primary health practitioners. Politically, that was um, quite an interesting scene to watch you know, as to, to what was deemed primary health care and what wasn't, and actually really having a proper earnest conversation with, about that, which was needed. It would never have happened without a crisis. So that was good. But the second part is people weren't geared or they didn't have tool sets to, to communicate it or employ what minimised risk. So I think there was there was a really slow slow curve with disruption market. Like you've got a disruption curve and there was an opportunity and people didn't really understand that too too much. It was a bit bamboozling for them. Um, whereas for us we were able to do this way before the regulator had even gotten their spinning head together. So we were we were lucky on that in our practices, which was great. Um, I think another part of it is yeah, having worked in different parts of the world and understanding that Different countries present different problems with with things like pandemics. So in Scotland, particularly, the vitamin D here is poor. Um, people should be taking vitamin D supplements. We we pre-ordered loads of vitamin D um, as droplets, taught people how to take them. Um, why that was significant was just being able to say, this is your responsibility. This is something that you're not getting, and we know already from early research that your immune system needs to be buffered. Now, was that the cure? No, I'm not suggesting it's, it's a cure thing. But what, how do we teach people to take better responsibility of their health, not transmit COVID, listen to what's recommended as guidelines? It's not necessarily law. Some things are law, don't get me wrong, but the guidelines and where your responsibility lays with that. So we were lucky to have a global idea of going, okay, well, if you're closer to the equator, you're more likely to have more... Um, Vitamin D. These, this is potentially why COVID's not as harsh as that. And one of the things I was involved with during the COVID um, period, um, when it was highlighted, was unfortunately we had at the same time, um, and I think it did go through the House of Lords as a discussion, but it was certainly went through Parliament for stop about the maternal de- death, the four times likelihood of same ladies um, dying at, during childbirth compared to. Um, their um, British um, counterparts. And part of that is not having proper metrics and understanding mm-hmm. how people's bodies work in different environments. So we were lucky. I, I work um, one of my first South African, South Africa, another one is uh, South Korean, um, another one is um, Scottish who studied in England. So we were able to have really good academic, com- oh, we had French, French people before as well as part of that group um, at the initial part of COVID. So we were able to actually have conversations about healthcare, like proper healthcare, like what do people do to be well, not sick care, but healthcare. Um, and we were able to make some really good protocols within the practice. I Luckily again, I guess, um, got practices that were um, risk managed in terms of social distancing. So that we had big airy ventilated spaces um, these were things that I was I was working on as I built the practices up anyway. So I was really conscious because we, we've always had contagions. Contagions are with us and they will be with us forever. Um, they're part of the microbiome that we live in and live around and they're part of some, yeah, the fabric of life. 
um, and just risk managing that anyway. So what else do we need to employ? The hardest part, though, was trying to align with staff who had never been um, exposed to these kind of stresses before and understanding that they're in a health clinic. Like, this is where they work. They don't work in a butcher's, they don't work in a supermarket, they work in a health clinic. So what? who do we need to come in? How do we need to take care of them? We did a pivot, which um, has been very successful, um, and I'll get into little elements, but anyway, but we started all our initial appointments, all our initial consultations with people who had never been in the practice before online on Zoom. So we spent a lot of time teaching people how to use Zoom, which is a completely different aspect of trying to help people um, access telemedicine. Again, growing up in Australia, we're a huge, vast country. Um, we'd been employing telemedicine-related work for a long time, and the early research for that came from Australia. Um, everybody knows fine doctors and so on and so forth, but sometimes you know the, the, the outlay and the cost of that is just exorbitant. So um, something like telemedicine and um, yeah, online healthcare is great. What people need to understand, though, it's not to stop people coming in, it's to bring people in. So how do we get over that hurdle of making mm. sure they're coming into the right place for the right thing, stopping them having to move, stopping them having to access other things that they might need and having that proper um, uh, online consultation where you've got your, your diagnostic tools that you can use and then you can have your history mm. taken. And then, yeah, of course, you can ask about health situations like COVID, but you can also see people, right? Like you can see if someone's got a sweat or you can test if people have got a, got a cough that's, that's unrelenting. You can see when they get up on a chair, if they're cradling an arm. Like there's all these things that you can see that patients don't really realise that we're doing what's called a physical assessment or examination with, that we would do, normally do in when they're with us anyway. So on a screen, it doesn't make any difference. To touch somebody and to do therapy that's touch-related, yeah, mm. of course you need them in. But it did allow us to get people in much, much sooner. We were able to make that space because we were able to do our Zoom initial consultations all over Scotland. So if I had a practitioner in Stirling, he could do it if he had a, if he had a gap for 40 minutes or whatever time allowance. Then we could get the patient in, in Edinburgh, who was in Edinburgh, half an hour later. Now, I don't know any other practice that was able to be that operational managed during that time. Um, and so we did we did a great job with that. And again, you know, that was coming back to going, okay, what is our operational management? What is our risk assessment? How do we get people in without um, compromising not only my staff, but um, other, other patients um, and then themselves? So, yeah, it was a disruptive market mm. uh, needed to have some disruption happen to it. So hopefully um, with the NHS as well, they can, because it's such a big machine, hopefully they can help sustain what they've changed and that they can, yeah, be a better service to people with those kind of things. So. Yeah, hopefully so. Hopefully those lessons and that sort of change can be really harnessed moving forward into the future. I think that's incredibly important. And obviously thinking about the future just before we wrap things up, Jane, as well, um, as we start to sort of embrace this kind of changing environment, let's say, what are some of your priorities going to be at A1 Cairo in the clinics that you are in charge of? And what is it that you're really sort of hoping to achieve yourselves over the course of this new year, now that we are hopefully emerging from the acute phase of COVID, as it were? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we've we've taken on more staff during this time um, because we have grown in a positive and good way. Um, so we've got our support staff that I'm doing a lot of training with. I'm trying to make sure that they have Again, you heard me earlier about being passionate about um, women having ideas and bringing those businesses in. So a lot of the people that I have working with me don't also do um, 
support worker, they have got their own side businesses that they're trying to get up and running. So I'm trying to support those as well. So I'm not the sort of person that believes you can only work for us. I'm very much, what skills can we help teach you so that you can employ for yourself? Don't leave us, we'd really like to keep you. But how can we balance up? How can we create a stable environment for you then pursue dreams that you wouldn't necessarily do without that support? So um, that's one aspect that we're focused on. The second aspect is I would like to um, build the practices um, and stabilise them um, more for the potential of M&As. I've got some very, um, very good um, people that work with us already that may want to grow into becoming directors and having their own business um, split off from ours. So just trying to mentor that and nourish that um, at the same time. And then I've got some other ventures that I'm going into. I've, I, I do business um, consulting, which uh, I haven't had as much time for it, but I'd like to. Um, so I'm going to do that as well. And I'm looking to um, reduce my hours um, patient facing, and I'm looking to hopefully do a global health PhD um, relating to what I talked about earlier. I specialise in pregnancy and paediatrics, and there are some really good situations that have come out of. We've had a bit of a baby boom, as we probably all know, um, during this time. And we've had some very interesting things come out of it. We've got less um, premature birth, but we've got more breach presentations. So trying to make sure that we can use the information that we've had over the last couple of years and actually put it into some good outcomes for women. So I'd like to do, um, you know, less, less hopefully maternal death, um, but also how do we help women when they haven't had that contact? Because that was a big thing over that time. Um, they weren't able to be midwives and so on. But what what do we need to help women during the pre-pregnancy, the fertility stage, and also through pregnancy? How do we get them to be their best physical and mental um, situation? How can we be better support to that in a very economic um, way? And that's that's what hopefully what the future holds. That's what I'm looking to do. Yeah, some incredible ambitions there. Very far-reaching as well, wide-reaching and. I do wish you all the luck in the world, Jane, in really executing that to uh, to full effect. And I think as we start to see sort of how that vision is really borne out over the coming year, I'd certainly love the opportunity to hear from you again on this and just sort of catch up as to sort of how things are getting on in the future. Yeah, that would be kind of, well, it helps motivate me to occasionally write too. Like, oh, yeah, I did say that, didn't I? So, do it. <laughs> so yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. It's, um, yeah, it's nice that you um found me and, and decided that, I was somebody that may have an interesting story, so I'm I'm humbled by that. So thank you. Absolutely, and we're so so grateful for your time on this, coming to speak to us here at the Leaders Council, because sharing those real and authentic stories from leaders in all walks of life is very much the crux of what we do. And Jane, as well, um, once more, thank you for coming on to the program and joining us today. And do by all means take care and stay safe with all that's still going on as well. And you, and you. All right, enjoy, and hopefully the sun comes out in a little bit, eh? You get that vitamin D. <laughs> yeah, hopefully so. I mean, we certainly all need a, a good dose of that for certain. And uh, just for everybody tuning in today, it was an immense pleasure, of course, welcoming Dr. Jane Brassington onto the programme. And I do hope that you thoroughly enjoyed listening to the interview just as much as I enjoyed speaking to her. Um, just for anybody who's tuning in as well that may have their own business or organisation, which might have its own story of success and of innovation to share with us here at the Leaders' Council, uh, by all means, we, of course, want to hear from you as well. So you can also apply to be on the show to share your story via leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. And to all of our regular listeners, until next time, please do take care and goodbye.